I think about when I go to these churches that put on these Christmas Eve services and you kind of, you listen to the story again, I can't stop thinking it is the greatest story of all time. Even if it were fiction, it would be the greatest story of all time, but it's even greater because it's actually true. If you stop and think about it for a second, Christianity has never been a faith without evidence. It's always been a faith based on evidence. Even the apostles, when they preached, they said, you yourselves know and you yourselves saw, you saw him raised, so you can't even argue with this. It was always about faith. And Christ was born. These things did happen. A virgin did give birth. God himself became man. It actually is a historical thing. It's an amazing story. So when planning on what am I going to talk about with this story, there's so many different angles you could look at. This is what occurred to me. And so I'm going to start here and we'll jump around a bit, but I'm going to read Revelation 13 verses 5 through 8. which is not going to make sense why I'm starting here until I explain it later. Revelation 13, verses 5 through 8. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for, two, for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, it also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and the authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Thank you, Lord, for this time of worship and celebration of your birth. Help us, God, have a new perspective on the, the magnitude of this day and this evening and tomorrow. Help us to be changed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so that's a weird verse. But the point I want to make in that verse is that God always has a plan. And I want you to think about this verse again. And I've highlighted the part that I wanted to focus on. The part that I want to focus on is not the main part of the text in Revelation. I read a few verses ahead just to give you the context. But so there's going to be this beast, and it's going to be persecuting the saints, and all are going to worship it who are not written in this book. But look at the title of this book The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. In Revelation 13, verse 8. That's what it's called, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. It's also called generally the book of life. You may have heard that term. Paul calls his fellow workers those whose names are written in the book of life in Philippians 4.3. In Revelation 3.5, when Jesus is talking to the church in Sardis, he says those who conquer will never have their name blotted out of the book of life. In Revelation 17, verse 8, it's called the book of life from the foundation of the world. In Revelation 20, verse 5, it says, Those who do not have their names written in this book are thrown into the lake of fire. So, there is a book, and every believer, everyone that is saved, has their names written in this book. And if we take this verse literally... Their names were already written in the book before God ever did anything. 
Their names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Before God said, let there be light, before God did anything else, there was this book and he wrote everyone's name in it who was ever going to believe in him. Now that's a really interesting topic, which is not the main topic. The book is called The Lamb Who Was Slain. I want you to think about this for a fact. Before God did anything, the book our names are written in is called The Book of the Lamb Who Was Slain. What does that tell you about God's plan when he said, let there be light, let there be water, let there be land, let there be sea creatures, let there be animals, let there be vegetation. He puts Adam and Eve in a garden. He sets out. He already had a book that was already called The Book of the Lamb Who Was Slain. It means that before anything ever began, God had a plan to send his son to be a lamb, to be slain for us. I just want you to think of the magnitude of God's sovereign plan from all time past. He puts Adam and Eve in this Garden of Eden. He gives them these parameters. They disobey him and they receive a curse And in that curse, there's already a prophecy of the coming Messiah. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And Jews from all time past knew this was about the Messiah. This isn't a Christian thing we made up. Even the Jews said, this is about the coming Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent. And from that time on, from the earliest chapters, all through the Old Testament... God continues to promise a Messiah. Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So that was a prophecy that he was going to come from the tribe of Judah. And he did. And the Old Testament goes on and on. And there are at least, some count this differently, there are at least 570 different prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And at least 300 were already fulfilled by his first coming. The rest have to do with the second coming. The point is, Christ's coming was always part of the plan. We sometimes get confused thinking that God's plan of salvation was a reaction to us. We think that when God made Adam and Eve, his goal forever was Eden. And oh my goodness, they messed up. Now what am I going to do? He, then he creates like sacrifice for their sins. Then he gives them this law and they can't keep it. And oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? I've got to give them more laws to follow. And they can't do that. Well, gosh, hey, son, would you mind going down there and dying? Because they're clearly not following. We think that he's being reactionary in history. But it's not the case. Before the foundation of the world, the book was already called the book of the lamb who was slain. So just think of the story of Christ's birth from the perspective of God being in control of everything. The angel Gabriel tells Mary, for example, you're going to be pregnant and your son will be the son of God. He will reign over his people forever. Not he might if he, if it works out for him, if he, if, you know, if things work out, but he will rule forever. That was God's plan from the beginning when Joseph wants to divorce Mary quietly because she's pregnant and the child's not his, God 
visits him in a dream and says, marry her anyway. And he says to Joseph, this son will save his people from their sins. Again, not he might, but he will. It's why he came. And when Herod tries to find this child and kill it, all we see over and over again is God intervening through dreams, telling Joseph, go here, go there, come back here, go down there, now come here, because no one can thwart God's plan, not even the king. And sometimes we get confused about why Jesus came. You might think he came just to teach love and to kind of like heal people, but his people rejected him, and how sad is that, that they crucified him. They shouldn't have done that. We think that that wasn't the plan, but it totally was. Again, the book of the Lamb who was slain. And Jesus knew this. He knew that's why he came. He wasn't surprised when his own people turned on him. It was all part of the plan. All throughout the book of John, what does Jesus keep saying? My time is not yet. My time is not yet. My time is not yet. And what does he mean by that? He finally tells us in John 12 when he says, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? Next verse, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He always had in his mind the fact that a time will come when I am going to die. It was always the plan. It wasn't an accident. What did he say when the people came to arrest him in the garden? And one of his followers took a sword to defend him. He says, put your sword away. He says in Matthew 26, don't you think I can ask my father to send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He always knew this was the plan. There's a part in the, the Chosen TV series that is interesting. There's so much about it that's not in the Bible. It's fiction, but it's interesting. There's a, there's a scene where... Christ is walking by, Lindsay mentioned this last night, he's walking by other men who are being crucified by the Romans for some, whatever law they broke. And Jesus walks by and he looks at these men crucified knowingly because he knows that's going to be him. The point so far in this whole message is that it was always part of the plan. From the beginning of the world, Christ coming, heaven touching earth in the form of this baby, was always the plan so that he would die for us. He becomes a man, born of a virgin, has a perfectly sinless life, becomes a sacrifice for us, takes the sins of the entire world from all time on his shoulders so that all we can do, all we have to do now is freely believe and receive that gift of his sacrifice and we're saved forever. That is why he came. It's like the angel said to Joseph, he will save his people from his sins. And that was always the plan. That's not the end of the story. He is coming back. And as we end the season of Advent, it's fitting to remind us that this whole season, what it's all about is about expectation. All of Advent is preparing yourself for Christmas. Not for the gifts, but preparing yourself for the coming of Christ. And part of that is looking back in history and looking back at the story of his birth, remembering that, remembering the gospel, thanking him. But the second part of that is looking ahead to his second coming. So the Advent is not just about the first coming, but also about the second coming. 
Christ did come into the world, and there was that expectation of Messiah. He came into the world during a time when the people had great expectation. They were looking for the Messiah, and he came. And the second part is no different. Now, today, we are looking for the return of our Messiah. We are eagerly awaiting the return that he promised us. He said he'd come back, and we have no reason to doubt him. Why? Because so far what we've seen in history is nothing stops God's will. His prophecies come to pass. It says in Daniel 4, verse 35, that God does according to his will. God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. None can stop God from doing what he wants to do. In Psalm 115, it says, Our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. So when he says, I'm coming back, nothing can stop that from happening. It is going to happen. So what I want to do is end by looking at a beautiful place in the Bible where Jesus talks about his return. He's returning for many reasons, not just this one. He is coming to bring judgment for sin the world as we know it will come to an end. There will be a new heaven, a new earth. He will live and reign forever, and we will reign with him. Those things are all true, but there's an aspect of his return where he wants to see his church like a bride that he has left to work for, and he's coming back to receive. And I love this passage. John 14, starting in verse 1, he says to his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. For that where I am, there you may be also. And then in verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In Revelation 22, 12, it says, Behold, I am coming soon. These are promises he has. And he, this is like wedding language he uses to get us in that mentality of we as a church are like a bride keeping ourselves pure and waiting for his return. And he is certainly coming back. He's prepared a place for us to bring us to go be with him forever. And we look forward to that. That's the promise. And none of his promises fail. None of his prophecies fail. All that he wills to do, he will accomplish. And as we close into our time of communion, what I want to do is have is acknowledge the fact that even in communion, there's a sense of expectation. Because in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, when Paul is talking about communion, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. What is that doing? When we're taking communion and saying, we're going to keep doing this until he comes, what it's doing is reminding us that he is coming back. That he will come back. And so as we take together, if you are a believer, then you are invited to take of the body and the blood and receive communion. Communing with the Lord, communing with each other as we, as one people, one church, one bride, proclaim the Lord until he returns. We hold fast to his promise and we keep ourselves pure. Let's pray and then take communion.